0: Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse one. This is God's word. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and for the contributions for, for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mattaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah, in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kind of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor. O my God. And spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah. But only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the firstfruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is God's word. You may sit down.
1: We come to the end of the story of Nehemiah, a story about rebuilding. And this morning we're looking at what happens when things fall apart. What do you do when things fall apart? So this stage in the story of Nehemiah, he has gone back to the Persian king, called here the king of Babylon because the Persian empire inherited the Babylonian empire and sometimes the king was called the Babylonian king, but it's the Persian empire, Artaxerxes, the emperor there. He's gone back to him and then he returns to Jerusalem and he finds that all the reforms that he's put in place have fallen apart. What do you do when things fall apart? What do you do when your life falls apart. What do you do when your marriage falls apart? What do you do when your finances fall apart? What do you do when it seems like the country is falling apart? What do you do when society and even the churches feel as if they're at least close to falling apart. Well, this morning we're going to learn what to do. And Nehemiah is going to teach us. We're going to look at what Nehemiah did, what Nehemiah wanted, and that really is the most important part, what he wanted, and therefore what we are to do. So first of all, what Nehemiah did, and what he did was partly internal, In his own mind and heart, his attitude, his thinking, uh, his mental approach, partly internal and partly external. So, internally, uh, what he did is told to us in verse 8 And I was very angry. (laughs) He's angry. And boy, is he angry. Later on, we uh, find that he actually pulls out the hair of people who are opposing him. (laughs) He's angry. What made him so angry? Well, right beforehand, we're told in verse 7, he comes back to Jerusalem and he discovers the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Now, you may remember that Tobiah was one of the enemies of what God was doing. And uh, through God's graciousness, Nehemiah and God's people had defeated their enemies. And Nehemiah had gone back to King Artaxerxes. And then he returned and he found that Tobiah, one of the enemies of God's people, is given a special chamber in the temple itself. It would be a bit like after World War II, discovering that a special penthouse suite had been given to Hitler in the White House. What is going on? You mean in the temple, Tobiah has his own special chamber? He's angry. This is Wrong. There is a place for anger. There's a place for a fire to be lit inside you. There is a time to stand up and speak up. There is a time for anger. And my sense is that nothing very much will change in your life or in the life of uh, the work of the gospel in this country unless we have some renewed passion even anger of course it's uh, possible to be angry about the wrong things and anger itself is a is a dangerous emotion even when it is righteous anger the bible says in your anger do not sin it doesn't say never be angry there is a place for anger, but it says in your anger do not sin, for anger is a dangerous emotion. Very easily we can, in our anger, say something we should not say, do something we should not do. It's a fire, it's dangerous, it's risky, but there is a place for anger. Martin Luther once said that he never wrote or spoke well unless he was angry. Some of us are too passive. We're not angry about anything. I'm fine. My house is fine. My finances are fine. I'm comfortable. I watch what's going on. I'm not involved. I'm passive. Some of us are too passionate, we're angry about everything. Reminds me of one person I once knew who, of whom it was said that uh, of whom, uh, she used to say she would give so and so a piece of her mind when she was angry and rather sadly she got dementia in her old age and people used to say about her a little unkindly she'd given too many people a piece of her mind. You can be too passionate. And there's a lot of that today. But we shouldn't go to the other end of the spectrum and never be angry about anything. So he was angry. But then externally, he does two things. He reforms the church and he renews the families. He reforms the church in uh, three ways. First, the physical church buildings. So, verse 9, then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. In other words, he's concerned for the physical buildings. Well, there's a thought. We often say today, the church is the people, not the buildings. And I've said that myself, and of course it is true. But the buildings are where the church meets when it can the buildings are our home the buildings are our center for mission the buildings matter sometimes people say I love Jesus but I don't much care for the church but if you love Jesus you'll love the church for the church is the bride of Christ be like saying about a friend of yours who's married I like you but I cannot stand your wife Now if you love Jesus, you'll love his bride. Sometimes people say, "I love Jesus and I love the church, but I cannot stand physical buildings." But that'd be like saying about a friend of yours and their family, "I, I like you, I like your family, but I don't care much for your home. In fact, I'm going to kick you out on, your street, on the streets. It's their home. It's our home. It's our place of mission. It matters. And he cleanses the buildings. So, first of all, he uh, reforms uh, the church by cleansing the buildings, focusing on the physical vehicle for mission the physical campus, the church, the buildings of the church. But then also, he's so practical, Nehemiah. He then focuses on the finances of uh, the church. So, as he reforms it, so verses ten to thirteen all about money. He says, verse ten: I also found out the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. In other words, uh, the staff of the church had not been properly paid. So they have no recourse in order to be able to earn a living than to go back uh, to a, a secular job. And they've left the, the church because they cannot work there anymore. They've got to earn a living. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, he sorts out the finances. Verse 11, so I confronted the officials, the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And uh, he makes sure that the, uh, the tithe comes back, verse 12. Then all Jew- Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And he makes sure it's administered properly. I appointed as treasurers various people, those, he says, who were considered reliable. Everything is above board and done appropriately. He sorts out the finances so that the staff are paid And the work of the church can be administered properly by the Levites. Now, we, I think, are a generous church by and large. And when I pray um, for the church, for you, I give thanks for our generosity. I think it's remarkable that in a time of global pandemic, we, at least at this point, are still on budget it is extraordinary, and I praise God for it. On the other hand, we can always do better. And uh, we have significant financial goals at the end of this year for our budget and also for our capital campaign. Everyone who's a member of this church or a regular tender, if you're not a Christian, we don't expect you to give. But everyone who's a member of this church and a regular tender, the expectation is you would give something. Maybe you can give a lot. Then you should give a lot. Maybe you can only give a little bit. Then give a little bit. But everyone should give something. When I look at the list of um, the percentage of members and regular tenders And how, they, how many, I never know who gives what by the way. But when I look at the data My ambition is that one day, I would say, see, 100% have given to the capital campaign. 100% of us are committed to the budget. We're not there yet. And so he reforms the finances. Uh, But then also, as he reforms the church, he reforms Sunday attendance. Sunday attendance. So this is verses Fifteen uh, through um, uh, really through to verse twenty-two, and what he sees is people trading wine presses on the Sabbath. That is, they're working on the Sabbath, and of course, so they're working on the Sabbath, they can't worship on the Sabbath. They're busy, and uh, it, he sees that the the gates are open on the Sabbath, and so he shuts the gates and stops traders from sitting outside so people can slip through the gates and still trade on the Sabbath. In other words, he reforms the church by reforming Sunday attendance. He expects people on the Sabbath to worship God, to make that their priority. Now, This is a tricky thing for us these days. Obviously, Nehemiah was a governor, a political leader, and I do not have the power to change the the working practices of the whole country about Sunday, and nor do you. In fact, statistically, one-third of Americans have to work on Sundays. That's an important piece of data for us, I think. We should... Perhaps consider whether we should do a worship service on another day of the week. And maybe it's less than one-third locally. I need to look into that data. Maybe it's somewhere else that it's far more than one-third. And locally, not many have to work on Sunday. But at any rate, some of us have to work on Sunday. And that's the case in order to survive. Then um, you can stream the service some other time. And perhaps, perhaps that's what, what's happening right now. And maybe we should open a worship service once we're through COVID on a different day of the week. But in my experience, the biggest barrier to Sunday attendance, a regular Sunday attendance, involvement in the church, when we're through COVID, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night prayer meeting, the biggest barrier to attendance on a Sunday morning specifically, on a Sunday, specifically, is sport. The Bears game. Uh, My child's soccer games. It's a huge barrier. If you uh, say to your children... Uh, You can play soccer on Sunday mornings and you've got a big game and that matters more. Uh, uh, You go to that game and when you're not playing soccer, then you can go to church. What message are you sending to your children? The message you're sending is that soccer is more important than church. And if you send that message throughout their young years, when 8, 9, 10, 11, 12... Do not be surprised if when they get to 25 and 30, they apply that principle in ways that you do not want. And other things are more important than church. And they stop going to church altogether. They're just being consistent. It is a challenge. One of our children um, uh, is in various leagues and sports. And... um, One time, there was a um, shift in the schedule so that now the sporting event was taking place on Sunday morning. And we talked about that as a family. Is he going to miss out? Is is he not going to have that opportunity? And in the end, I just said, look, we're a Christian family. We worship God Sunday morning. And I I had to call up the coach and say, look, he, he just can't come on Sunday mornings. We're Christians I don't want to be difficult, but that's just the way it is. And the, the coach was, Oh, I understand. You know, within two months they changed the schedule. You just have to take a stand. Think about it. If everyone in Wheaton, in the area, said, Sunday morning, we are not playing sport, do you think the sporting leagues would still play? No. Take a stand. Again, statistically, uh, and I don't look at individual, we we track attendance through the uh, connection card. And one day, my ambition is that members and regular attenders would be in church on Sunday morning something like 85, 90% of the year. We're nowhere near that now. Nowhere near. It's an issue. He, uh, he reforms Sunday attendance. So he reforms the church, physical buildings, finances, attendance. And then he renews the families. Now, here we've got to do a little bit of translation from the Old Testament to the New Testament, understand really what's going on. Uh, this is from verses 23 to 27, and he, he finds people who have married uh, foreign women, as he says, uh, verse 27. And, he confronts them and changes this, changes this. now, this does not mean, hear me clearly, this does not mean here the Bible is saying it's wrong to marry someone of a different race. This is not not what this means. And the reason why we know that is because in the Bible, the book of Ruth, for instance, Ruth was a Moabitess. she was from. Moab she married uh, a Jew and Ruth is a hero and she is one of the forebears of King David and of course therefore um, of Jesus Christ himself. So this does not mean that it was wrong for them to marry someone of a different race. The issue is not race. Uh, One day there'll be in heaven uh, people worshiping at the throne of Jesus from every nation, tribe, and language. This is not race. The gospel is the one hope for racial reconciliation. This is religion. The issue is these people that they are marrying do not worship God. And the New Testament makes a consistent point. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked, meaning don't marry a non-Christian. He says, you're free to marry whomever you want as long as he or she is in the Lord. That is a real Christian. Now, you may be married already to a non-Christian. And you pray that your non-Christian spouse would be converted but as you pray that, you know full well that conversion is a sovereign act of God's grace and their conversion is not in your hands. You do your best, but it's up to God. I've known several people over my years who've been married to non-Christians and some of them have had fulfilling, flourishing lives of service, but even, and some have not, but even those who have had fulfilling lives of service Christian service each of those that I know would say and advise strongly do not be unequally yoked it creates tension sadness difficulty different principles about child rearing and spending of money and spending of time and any number of things you're pulling in different directions You perhaps are married to a Christian, but your marriage is not going well. Would you make it a commitment this morning to renew your marriage? To reach the country, we must reform the church. To reform the church, we must renew families. And to renew families, we must revitalize marriages. Husbands, love your wives with a self sacrificial love. Wives, honor and respect your husbands. So he renewed the families by renewing the marriages. So that's what he did. Internal. He had a righteous anger, external, reformed the church, renewed the families. But what did he want? And as I said at the beginning, this is most important of all. This is what he wanted. And we know it's most important because it's repeated over and over again throughout this chapter. And really as it culminates, there's a great wave of repetition throughout the book. And it repeats with increasing frequency throughout this chapter to make the point that this drum beats throughout the book of he, a book of um, Nehemiah is emphasizing that above all Nehemiah wants God's approval and the drum beat that is with increasing rapidity is the word remember. He says it here verse 14 remember me O oh my God And then uh, he says it again, verse 22, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love, remember. And then verse 29, remember them, O my God, because he is focused on that day of accountability and he is leaving. This is how his anger is righteous, not unrighteous. Ultimately, he's leaving the judgment to God. It's up to you, God. Remember them, O oh God. And then finally, the last phrase of the book Remember me, O oh my God, for good. He said this throughout the book, chapter 1, verse 8. Remember me. Chapter 5, verse 19. Remember. Chapter 6, verse 14. Remember. Now, remember me, O oh God. Remember me, O oh God. Remember me, O oh my God. What he wants. Is God's approval. What do you want? You know, sometimes it's said that the thing that should motivate us is imagine in your mind what people are going to say to you about you at your funeral. Let that motivate you. What do you want them to say about you at your funeral? What a ridiculous motivation. You're not there. Number one. Number two, I've been to a lot of funerals and I can tell you that what people say about other people at that funeral bears at best a pale resemblance to who those people actually were. What you want to motivate yourself is the God who sees, who knows, who loves, who cares, who will not forget. Remember me, oh my God. Well, what are we to do then when things fall apart? That's what he did. And primarily and principally were to do what he did and wanted, which is, in summary, a focus upon the health of the church. You want to see this country revived? Focus on the health of the churches. You want to see the city revived? Focus on the health of the churches. You want to see the gospel come again with power? Focus on the places that are meant to proclaim the gospel, the churches. What does that mean? Here are four questions for you. Number one, what are you angry about? God's honor or your reputation? Second question What do you invest your time and energy and resources in? Yourself? Your home? Or the church? Third question, how's your marriage? Or if you're not married, how's your family? Is Jesus at the center of it this Christmas? And then final question, whose approval are you looking for? God's? Your father's? Your mothers, your wives, your husbands, your friends, or Jesus's? Oh, he had a zeal for the church, did Nehemiah. But nothing compared to the far greater Nehemiah who came. When he was just a young boy, he was found in the temple asking questions of the senior Christian leaders. How do you understand this bit of the Bible? What about this? And then, according to John's gospel, the beginning of his ministry, the beginning of his career, his public career, he was found in the temple cleansing it. And those who saw him with his anger said, Ah, oh, that reminds me of that Old Testament passage. Zeal for your house will consume me. And then things fell apart. And according to Mark's gospel, the end of uh, his ministry, his public career, towards the end, he came back to that temple. And he had to cleanse it again, just like Nehemiah did. But unlike Nehemiah, his final words were not, Remember me, O oh my God, but instead, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why? He was forsaken that you might be remembered. And only in him and through faith in him, can you rebuild? Oh Jesus, give us zeal. Jesus, Jesus, give us God-honoring marriages. Jesus, renew your church. Only in him can we rebuild. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we do pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit. I pray now, Lord, would you pour out your Spirit on this congregation, on all those participating online? That zeal for your house. For your church would fill us. That we wouldn't be passive. Lord, that we wouldn't be angry about our reputation. But we would have a righteous zeal, a godly passion for your honor. To renew our families and to reform your church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.